You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. It's with great pleasure I bring you the world's leading Georgist author, Fred Harrison, author of books such as Boom Bust 2010, Ricardo's Law, The Silver Bullet, The Predator Culture, As Evil Does, The Traumatised Society. What about Wheels of Fortune? That's the one that uh, really lifted the lid on value capture. I bet Malcolm Turnbull once read it. All right, let's go to the interview with Fred Harrison from sharetherents.org. Fred, I invited you on to the show to uh, discuss uh, this historic marker of uh, uh, the 10-year anniversary since the uh, bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers and the uh, horrendous weekend that was back in 2008 when uh, global financial markets locked up and all hell was breaking loose. So much has been written about it, but uh, for me, you are uh, one of the few people who actually predicted this and uh, wrote about it. Uh, was it way back in the 1980s? You were 87. You re- released that 2010 was going to be a big issue. Uh, 2008, 2010, that sort of time frame. And then in Boom Bust 2010, you uh, released that in 2006. So you've got the runs on the board. Uh, there's been dozens, hundreds of articles written about the, the financial crisis and the role of the banking sector. Have we learnt anything 10 years on, Fred Harrison? No, we haven't. Nothing? Nothing. The closest that people get to, that is the experts, who are quoted in the mainstream media, is... Well, yes, subprime mortgages had something to do with what happened with the financial sector. Um, That is the the best that they can do in terms of identifying the internal mechanism that creates the boom-bust business cycle. There has been no coherent affirmation that what happened in 2008 running up to the end of that cycle in 2010 was going to happen even without subprime mortgages. It was going to happen because our economy is structured in such a way in terms of the distribution of income and the nature of our property rights that uh, what happened uh, with the Lehman Brothers and the other banks was an inevitability. Uh, And if that is the case, and I believe that the evidence leads to the conclusion that it is uh, the case, that these uh, cycles are built into the DNA of the capitalist economy, well, then it should be a really a uh, simple exercise to predict when the next major cycle is going to happen. But it's the issue that is too painful to address. So... The experts have avoided exploring the fundamental issues, even though the material is on the record. There's no secret about it. And as a consequence, all these celebrations, these analyses, and now the emerging discussions about the next boom bust uh, avoid uh, getting to the heart of the issue. So the answer to your question, Carl, is no, the lessons have not been learned. So... 
what is the defining indicator of a build-up in economic activity that uh, is accentuating risk? It's the way income is misallocated uh, to prejudice the value-adding half of the economy in favour of shifting resources towards those who are, let's use the general term, rent-seeking. Broadly, the people who seek privileged access to other people's incomes. Fundamentally, it is the shift of value into the land market and the activity we call land speculation. That is what cripples the productive economy. Uh, One fundamental reason why uh, the experts remain blind to, to this, Carl, is that they define capitalism as if it's a single system, as if it's a value adding process for producing goods and services. And so if uh, the economy falters and then stops, this is treated as market failure. Well, that is a uh, crude and misleading description of capitalism. Capitalism is actually a binary system. On the one half, you have the value-adding activity. People go to work and they actually produce goods and services and they want to make a living and cover the costs for supporting their families. But the other half of this capitalist system is a predatory one. It is leaching value out of other people's lives, literally, not just their pockets, but their lives, uh, and living off that value without earning it. Now, when you view the capitalist system in that binary form, then you need a more complicated analysis than the one we're getting from people on Wall Street and Harvard University and the rest of it who are considered to be the experts. So uh, we need to see the interaction between these two halves of the capitalist economy. And it's when the values over the course of the business cycle shift in favor of the predatory side of the economy that uh, we end up uh, creating unsustainable circumstances. House prices being one of the leading indicators, and it's not the houses themselves that uh, are relevant. We can build as, uh, as many houses as we want. It's what is happening underneath the houses, the land values that are the relevant indicators. But uh, you say, uh, have we learned any lessons? No, we haven't. We still talk about house prices instead of land prices. And if we're only focusing our gaze on what's happening above the land, well, then we come up with policies for dealing with uh, unaffordable homes, for example, as if the solution is to build more houses, whereas that's not where the solution is. Certainly, and it is that rising land price uh, that is draining so much of the money from the productive sector, from consumers, and uh, handing it to those who have enjoyed this first-come, first-served economy, largely uh, past generations and uh, uh, wealthy families who have been able to establish a, a strong power structure as reiterated by the economic system, as reiterated by the Westminster system itself and the House of Landlords, House of Lords, to oversee 
this uh, continual blame game between capital and labour. And uh, you've written so many books, Fred. goodness me, it must be about a dozen books you've written in the last decade. Uh, Many of them have been uh, top sellers, but uh, still uh, the challenge lies for the everyday person. And what worries me is the lack of critical analysis. Uh, uh, The everyday person who doesn't go to university, who uh, lives and breathes within what I call a murdocracy, uh, Rupert Murdoch's dominant media paradigm, uh, uh, that for me is the biggest challenge we have and why we have learnt so little since 2008. Yes, but <clears throat> let's not just focus the blame on the Murdochs, who are really just exploiting the system as they found it. Uh, the question is, how come the system is as it is uh, and therefore exploitable by people like Donald Trump or Mr. Murdoch. Um, it's, uh, people are not stupid, and if they were provided with a narrative which was simple enough to make sense of the reality, they would get the story, they would get to understand the reality, and they would also be motivated by basic human values to wanting to effect the change. The trouble is that it's the narrative about the way the world works that inhibits people from understanding. Uh, and the, 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 that narrative, the story about how society functions has been so skewed to protect this one virus, deadly virus, within the economic system that uh, people are just being denied the knowledge which they earnestly need if we're to solve our problems. Let me give you an example. In the current issue of The Economist, uh, they celebrate 175 years of publishing, right? Uh, That is uh, the week of September the 15th, 2018 edition. The current issue. They have pages celebrating liberalism, which began in the 1840s in England. uh, And in the current issue, they highlight two big problems that need to be addressed in order to restore liberalism and its values. And they say one of the big issues of the two that people need to focus on is land. And they celebrate Henry George's publication of the book in 1879, Progress and Poverty. And they acknowledge that taxation has to be reformed so that we shift uh, the revenue onto the rent of land. Now, it's a wonderful treatment of what needs to be done. But... The problem is the economist doesn't locate that reality in terms of a business cycle and a distribution of income in a way that makes sense to the people that you're referring to, Carl. They need to do so because just to doff your hat at the importance of Henry George and land value taxation is not enough to make sense of why that policy is significant. And so that falls on people like me who have the uh, incentive to want to find a way of conveying the story to work just that bit harder 
in order to reframe the policy in language which becomes accessible. But yes, we still then have the opposition from the Murdochs uh, and the other news media, uh, and that becomes where the battle lies. But that is the liberal prospectus, which is let democracy prevail. People need the freedom to talk, and uh, given that freedom, uh, the hope is that with um, an uncensored uh, debate, the truth will out. So that comes back to people like you, Carl, which is you have a command of a medium for communication, and it's up to your generation to tell the story in ways that become accessible to the wider population. Yes, well, I'm looking forward to uh, working with uh, a cartoonist from Peru who's uh, recently got in touch. So, uh, yeah, there are people learning online each and every day, and I love hearing uh, from listeners around the world. But, gee whiz, I'd love someone to share it on uh, Boing Boing or one of those giant big websites, uh, one of these episodes, because uh, we need this story to... uh, uh, break down uh, the barriers to interpreting reality. That is what I see most powerful about this whole analysis is that it does make sense of where our weekly budget is spent and gives you the historical markers that show that this has been a uh, you know thousands of years long battle between the monopolists and the people. We're not going to find new language to convey the story. We just have to identify the concepts and the combination of words which resonate. On the other hand, uh, (laughs) look, the uh, political institutions that run Australia are filled with people who mean well, but they derive a lot of their income, many of them anyway, from property portfolios. So put some of those guys in key positions like prime ministers, and they're not going to want much of a discussion about redesigning the distribution of income away from those who own the land, which gives them the power to milk everybody else. So we do have a democratic fight on our hands, uh, but it has to be designed to create that popular democratic mandate, which will then force the politicians who are invested in the present system to come to terms with the need for change. Listeners, we're in discussion with Fred Harrison, a leading Georgist author. Find his work at sharetherents.org. Now, Fred, uh, in that uh, Economist article, I was very happy to see a new headline data point for us listeners. Uh, They quote that the 50 largest cities on the planet house 7% of the population, but account for 40% of uh, global GDP. What does the implications for urbanisation imply for the general public in terms of understanding uh, the role of location, location? Well, you would think that it would make uh, the issue that easier to understand, Carl, but 
The problem is that crushing people at high densities into small locations creates the kind of manic existence where people can't relax enough to think, to work out problems. Sitting around a campfire in a previous age, uh, it was uh, more conducive to telling stories and working out uh, today's problems and what to do tomorrow. But in the urbanized world that we've now created for ourselves, uh, there is no time. There's no time to even look after our children, to attend to um, our spouses. We have to think about the next commuter train to get into the center to work. Uh, we work terrible hours, and then we get home late at night, uh, and uh, there there is no uh, scope for relaxation of the kind that enables people to imbibe the enlightenment values that we need in order to facilitate the change. So, yeah, location, location, well, we have us that stuffed into us with the reality shows. We're told location, location, uh, how to make money out of location. And that's, that becomes the name of the game. And it's all a disaster because the urbanization process is another symptom of a pathologically diseased society. Instead of spreading people out across the territory in a humane way and allowing interaction between all the parts of a space of a territory, no, we, we just uh, continue this, well, it's several centuries long process of sucking people and resources into smaller spaces, believing that this is the way to become more efficient, but all the time we are actually degrading our, our social systems. And that's where we are now at a critical point where we've lost the uh, stability and the virility to adapt to changes in a way that will sustain social evolution. Uh, far from this all being suc uh, a success story, we're reaching a tipping point, if we haven't already got there, where society won't be able to uh, go into reverse, to recover. And that's, that means we're at a very dangerous point in society. So, Fred, whilst... Uh the democratic processes are largely hamstrung. Uh, it's been inspiring to see in the UK that over the last uh, decade, the number of what's known as community land trusts has increased from two to some 280. And uh, when you consider the Georgia's influence uh, through people like Ebenezer Howard and the garden movement and so forth, uh, there are some remnants of land rent theory helping to provide affordable housing within uh, that scope. Do you see a growth in smaller uh, enclaves as a, uh, a beacon for others to recognise what could happen to the wider society? Yes, providing those who are pushing that model locate what they're doing in the broader context. We've had Ebenezer Howard and the new town concept, the Garden City, for more than 100 years in the UK. And it's fair to say, despite what you've just said about the community land trusts, that 
that hasn't affected the political discourse. Well, I have to qualify that by reference to the publication of The Economist this week, which, fair enough, does actually draw people's attention to the need for a systemic change in the fiscal system. But uh, the big danger of small experiments is that people become self-satisfied and fail to recognize that it's the total system that must ultimately change. And that these small experiments, while valuable in themselves and good for the people who are participants, um, uh, could become a distraction if uh, they're not used to symbolize the general problem and the general reforms that are actually needed. Because the... Land Trust itself, whilst keeping a lid on land price, misses out on the big social dividend that you highlight in your recent report, Brussels Blitz or £500 billion dividend. Now, can you talk uh, a bit about how that dividend is delivered? Because that's something I don't think enough people really understand uh, that side of the story. Well, start with realizing that the so-called efficient capitalist economy, and it's only efficient compared with its alternatives, is actually an extremely inefficient system. It's inefficient because government, not the market, but government is extremely inefficient in the way it raises its revenue through taxes. Because of that tax regime, a ceiling is imposed on people's productivity. Now, if it was only a a matter of uh, a ceiling that existed for a day, a week, a year, okay, so you can afford to lose some of the productivity that you would otherwise be producing. But if it's a loss of productivity of significant proportions over decades and then centuries, you realize that actually, if it hadn't been for the way government had interfered with people's abilities to fulfill their needs uh, over the course of hundreds of years, we would be living in a different world. Now, if we uh, try and estimate the losses that arise from this really inefficient way of funding public services, you end up with mind-blowing statistics. So, Uh, What I'm saying is that the UK, for example, would have an economy that would be larger today by something like half a trillion pounds. Well, how do you get your head around that? Well, unfortunately, you have to, because what it means is that the distortions to the productive economy are so savage that we are underperforming to such a huge degree that we are creating the problems that we feel ought not to be happening, like unaffordable housing, like the abuse of the environment, the pollution of our oceans. All these things are testaments. Actually, they're testaments not to failure, Carl. These uh, obscene outcomes of the system are actually designed to be outcomes. They are proof of the success of the kind of society that we have had foisted on us. But we don't like these outcomes. Well, of course we don't, but then 
understand why we have them. And we have them because of the huge biases and, and distortions and inefficiencies and the loss of the capacity to be productive uh, has to be measured in huge sums in, hu in terms of welfare, bearing in mind that when I say that the UK could be 500 billion pounds larger, that doesn't necessarily mean in material welfare, we could be taking a lot more of that productivity in terms of leisure time. Instead of working five days a week, uh, all hours of the day, we could be working three days a week and taking a lot more time off as a reward for our productive capacity. But we're denied that by the inefficiencies primarily of the way governments fund public services, which distort the way people work, the way they save, the way they invest. And we end up with this huge loss. And all the time, we're like mice on a treadmill trying to keep up with the cost of living when we should all be sitting back and relaxing and really enjoying life. Yes, and that technical term uh, you're alluding to there are deadweight costs that our uh, ineffective tax system imposes on the economy. And Brian Kavanagh here in Australia has estimated it's uh, costing us basically double the cost of every tax dollar raised. Uh, so, yeah, it's the worst possible way to be uh, running a government. And uh, when you think back 175, 200, uh, 2,000 years, there was this concept of political economy, how to make the... Uh, the economics of policy as effective as possible so that we don't need to have uh, endless political debates. Coming back to your point about the need for a narrative that ordinary folk can understand, think about uh, this notion of the dead weight losses imposed by taxes. Now, in a democracy, we're supposed to have transparency and accountability. So when governments issue their budgets, they claim to be transparent and they hold themselves up as accountable. But what they don't do is tell people what the deadweight losses of the taxes which they are going to renew each year. Think about what would happen in Canberra uh, if the federal government uh, in publishing its annual budget said, Oh, and by the way, folk, the losses that we're going to impose on you because of the way we're going to raise our taxes will amount to X billion dollars. People would turn around and say, but hang on, why, why are we losing all this value because of the way you're raising the revenue? Then they would have to explain, oh, well, it's because rather than raise it in a sensible way through a direct charge on the rent of land, we're going to tax your uh, labor or what you consume. And unfortunately, that means you're going to work less efficiently and less productively and uh, hard luck. Well, people would be up in arms. But you see, although economists absolutely understand the notion of dead weight losses, their alternative term is excess burden, the excess burden of a tax. And they will refer to these terms in some glib way. They never actually put a number to it so that people, when they're standing up at the bar in the pub, can say, oh, good gracious, we are about to lose another $10 billion because the government has decided to increase the tax rate by whatever it is. 
which, which is the language that people can engage in, because then they will be able to say, well, but we don't like losing all this value, do we? What can we do about it? Well, it's at that point, of course, that the danger occurs for our social system, which is why governments do not account for the deadweight losses which they impose every year when they announce a budget. So it's up to people like you and me, Carl, to insist that governments should, in their annual budgets, whether it's the state or the federal government or the municipal government, they should publish another statistic alongside uh, the revenue statistic, which is, oh, the estimate, the calculations for the losses that we are now going to impose on you because of the way we choose to raise this revenue. Well, that would change the discussion immediately, wouldn't it? If people were told how much they were going to lose because of the choice of the taxes. Because the next question is, is there a better way of doing this, Gov, than uh, losing all this value? And then we open up the discussion of the kind that appears in the current issue of The Economist. And that way we might stand a chance of accelerating the change that we desperately need. Now, uh, Fred, to finish off, uh, we talked earlier about the business cycle. Uh, uh, you've been very strong on this 18.4-year business cycle, and uh, here we are 10 years on. There's a lot of articles out and about at the moment saying, look, uh, gee whiz, uh, uh, global interest rates are starting to head up as quantitative easing has been wound back. Uh, the demographic drain, there's now less workers joining the workforce than those retiring, so the tax burden's increasing. We've already discussed urbanisation and the pressures that's putting on cities. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I just want you to highlight the key issue of uh, land sales turnover and whether that's a forewarning of economic correction. How did you come up with that as a, uh, a lead indicator of uh, possible recession? Well, it wasn't my discovery. It, it was uh, the result of the work in, in America by a guy called Homer Hoyt, who did a doctoral thesis that traced the 18-year cycles of Chicago and found that uh, there was this land value cycle that lasted 18 years, which happened to coincide with major recessions at the end of the cycle. So I, all I did was to say, well, if that was happening in Chicago, did it happen in all the other towns in America? And it did. And so I then said, well, if it happened in America, was it a peculiar to, to America? No because I checked cross-culturally and uh, spatially. I said, did it happen uh, in Japan, a, a very different culture to the United States? Yes, there was the 18-year cycle. And I said, well, what about a continent like Australia? There, there's so much land, so few people relative to the amount of land. Surely there was no land problem. Well, no, there was. There was the 18-year cycle operating in Australia over the course of 100 years. And, of course, it was there in the record in the UK. So it wasn't my discovery. I just retrieved Homer Hoyt's doctoral thesis and discovered that, yeah, we can make predictions about when the next big recessions are going to occur in the 20th and the 21st century. And uh, so, yes, they are now uh, all panicking uh, in the uh, academia where they... Uh, 
pretend to understand how the economy works and they're saying, oh, we're, we're due for, or uh, we're going to have another big recession, but they don't know really when because they have no theoretical underpinning for saying uh, what the timetable is. Uh, in my view, the, uh, all the evidence in terms of land sales and land prices and the impact on the fabric of communities resulting from those uh, transactions in land tell us that we're due for a recession over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. Uh, but it's a mid-cycle recession. It's not the big one at the end of the cycle. The big one won't begin till the current property cycle ends in 2026. And I'm now talking about a, a global cycle because the capitalist economy has gone global and uh, all economies are integrated into the same timetable. Uh, before, they used to be uh, working according to different uh, timetables. 18-year cycles still prevailed, but they began and ended at different times. But thanks to the Second World War, everything got synchronized. And now with the 2008 event, uh, the integration of the global economy is complete. So we're in a single cycle for everywhere. And the end of the current cycle is, uh, property cycle is 2026. And the, the full 18 years is up in 2028. Well, okay, so what's going to happen over the next few uh, months or the next 18 months is a mid-cycle recession. I think that governments will be able to cope with it because they haven't unscrambled the defences that they uh, erected to deal with 2008. The current commentators are saying, well, we won't be able to deal with the next recession and they're right, but it's not uh, the looming recession that uh, the governments won't be able to handle because the next one is not the really big one. And there is sufficient uh, uh, defenses in place still uh, so that come the next recession, they'll be able to cope because it's not the big one. The big one is it begins in 2026. What do you see as the most likely uh, tools for alleviation of uh, these rising debts and uh, increased casualization of the workforce, uh, wages aren't increasing enough? Uh, how do you think government is going to grease the wheels to get through this mid-cycle correction? They'll just carry on as they are, and the, the downturn will be sufficiently shallow so as not to actually uh, aggravate the system systemically uh, in terms of worse outcomes than we've already got. The, the populism, the anger, the rejection of mainstream political parties is already in train, and that will just be reinforced because uh, as we go through the next modest recession, governments will just... Uh, continue to pump out some money uh, and keep things stable. It's when the next big event occurs in 2026, which will be so fundamentally big that uh, the challenge occurs. And the answer to your question in relation to that outcome is they haven't got any tools to deal with it. It will be an utter catastrophe. It will no longer be the banks being too big to fail. It will be the government's too big to fail. 
But who comes to the rescue of, of governments that are too big to fail? Nobody. There is no way to save governments. So that's what, that is the, the terrible scenario. Something like 10 years from now, people will be sitting back and thinking, that's it. It's the end game. There are no tools. There's no quantitative easing, uh, no buying back people's debts, no cancellation of debts that's actually going to save the system. So that is the terrible prospect we fe uh, face. And somebody like you, Carl, had better start thinking ab about a rational plan for dealing with it so that actually reason can prevail rather than the um, alternatives, which are too terrible to think about. <laughs> Fred, well, uh, okay, let's play that sport then because there's four or five tools that are coming through that could easily, could easily, well, that should be on any meaningful reform agenda in 2026-27. Number one is, uh, of course, implementing a monopoly rent tax on all forms of monopoly. Number two is uh, the clean slate, dropping all debts. Number three is public banking and local currencies, encouraging those into play. Uh, four would be MMT, with the governments reclaiming control of the money supply and ensuring that uh, uh, they can, um, they, they're the ones who are, are spending the money and engaging in things like the people's quantitative easing. Uh, probably five is uh, outlawing uh, Standard and Poor's and Moody's. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the local currency story, that's a good quick one governments can get into play if they've got the land story correct. But it really worries me in this last decade how quickly the uh, MMT movement, modern monetary theory and the positive money groups have grown it's just so easy so trendy to bash the banks to bash uh, the miracle of compound interest but uh, a little more challenging to talk about the combination of land and tax reform yes and so that's the challenge what we have to do is create a new narrative of the kind that people find utterly plausible so that in the face of a catastrophe, people don't panic. That's the big danger, that uh, there is panic and then uh, people resort basically to violence in one form or another. So the preparation in the run-up to a terrible outcome uh, is um, the um, elucidation of a convincing, holistic transformation of the kind where there are enough reasonable social leaders, civic and political and spiritual, who can come together to say, look, this terrible outcome is going to happen, but we've got the uh, strategy for dealing with it in place. We know what to do. This is what it is. We believe people will be able to respond to it with these several reforms that you've been referring to. Uh, so we will be able to cope uh, uh, with, with that narrative in place. Then, as events start to build up towards the next major catastrophe, instead of ge getting what we're now getting, which is just a lot of 
dismayed statements about, golly, we won't be able to cope, the uh, media will start saying, well, actually, there are things we can do, and why don't we start putting them in place now in order to modify the outcome of the current uh, property cycle? And so the, the, the nature of the public debate begins to shift, and we take control of events rather than allowing those events to control us. Well, Fred Harrison, uh, thanks once again for joining us here on The Renegades. We better end it there. Uh, but uh, always good to talk and always uh, uh, feel like uh, my uh, intellectual skirmishes are uh, enriched and emboldened when I read your writing. So thanks very much for all the work you do. You're welcome. Thanks, Carl. Bye. Thanks for listening to 3CR's A Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. Check the show notes at earthsharing.org.au. And keep these monopolists honest.